This is Innovating a Bright Future. All right, welcome back. Thank you for being here for another episode this week. As always, I'm your host, Avery Kreibolt, with Innovating a Bright Future. This is the show where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technology driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. Today, I'm talking to Gael Golbosha. Maybe I'll get that name right eventually. I don't think I've got it yet. I'm trying to get it, but I don't feel like it should be as hard as it is. I just can't seem to get it. Anyways. We're here talking about carbon capture, carbon markets, and why it's important to not necessarily take everything that you hear out there for granted. Before we get into it, I want to recommend that once again you check out our social media and email newsletter in the show notes. Keeping up with that extra content lets us know that you're interested in hearing more from us and you like the content we're putting out. And as always, we love to hear your feedback. Other than that, enjoy the show. Okay, I'd like to welcome Gael Gobushaw, CTO at Mission Zero Technologies. Mission Zero is a relatively new company. You were actually created during the pandemic and you're most involved in carbon capture and carbon markets. So what else can you tell me about your story and the vision of Mission Zero? Yeah, thanks, first of all, for having me on the show. Very pleased to be telling you our story. Two years ago, I joined a venture builder called Deep Science Ventures. They're a really interesting venture builder that finds new opportunities, new solutions to some of the world's biggest problems. And working there, I spent about six months investigating different ways that we could make an impact in what I called closing the carbon cycle. So that's looking at ways of transforming carbon or using carbon in in ways that could make an impact. So that eventually led me down to the path of direct air capture. First, I was interested in how you use it, but I realized there's plenty of ways of using it. What we actually lack is a way of supplying green CO2 to where it's needed. So I suppose that kicked off initially with a few thoughts and those thoughts then transformed into like some, some te- technological ideas, some concepts about how we could do direct air capture, but with far less energy than what was currently being talked about at that time. And while at Deep Science Ventures, I there met my co-founders, uh, Nick Chadwick and Shil Gosh. And there we started doing a lot of commercial work to figure out what the technological solution needed to be. What did it need to be to meet the needs of the market and commercial constraints. So we uncovered some interesting supply demand dynamics. It's really exemplified by the fact that in say the UK, for example, you know, every couple of years we have supply shortages of carbon dioxide where companies cannot actually access the CO2 that they need. This was most highlighted by a, a company that actually produces carbon negative building materials. And and they regularly have had force majeure placed upon them. So they have, despite being one of the large CO2 users, they couldn't actually get the CO2 they needed to produce carbon negative building aggregates. So 
with that in mind, we thought, how can we make a direct air capture process, not just for sequestering CO2, but also supplying it at the point that it's needed? That set the design basis for the technology that we then built. With that kind of commercial thesis, we, we then were able to raise investment and ultimately get our incorporate as a company and then start doing the proof of concept experiments that would highlight the potential of our technology to be realized at the plant scale. And, you know, it's been a kind of a wild ride for the last two years of just getting closer towards being able to build our own first plant, which we hope that we will be able to build in about a year and a half's time. All right, perfect. That's a great summary of what you're trying to do and what you're working towards. I'm curious because this is something that's interested me as we see carbon capture becoming a bigger part of the carbon and energy economies through cap-and-trade systems, carbon trading systems. It can be difficult to see where exactly, if we're capturing CO2, where it goes next, if we can use it and how we can produce products from it so that it's an effective marketing tool. You've mentioned that one of the biggest consumers of CO2 is the carbon-negative building materials. What are some of the other companies that you've worked with or looked at collaborating with to use the CO2 that you're looking at capturing? Yeah, you know, there's a whole whole range of opportunities. We thought carbon negative building materials is would be one of the largest, but perhaps the second largest is synthetic fuels and chemicals. It's just as big of a market, huge amount of potential there. I'd highlight companies like 12 and Dioxycycle, who are companies that are turning CO2 into valuable chemicals using a, a new type of electrolyzer that they're currently commercializing. I think that's really good, and, and, and we are looking for ways that we can integrate our process into something like theirs. There's other kind of uh, lesser talked about chemical routes, such as making certain polymers that incorporate about 30, 40% of their weight with CO2 as a feedstock. Uh, th- these are companies like Covestro, Econic. And um, what's, what's particularly great about this is that they don't actually increase their costs by using CO2. There is a drop-in feedstock that actually, in some cases, reduces the cost of the process. Unlike synthetic fuels and chemicals, where you kind of have to take a hit on the economics for the greater good at this point in time, this CO2 to polymer process is uh, commercially viable from the outset. So I think that's a really interesting application that we'd, we'd like to work in as well. Ultimately, there's, those are the, you know, some of the, the big ones. CO2 to methanol, there's a, there's a company in Iceland that are producing carbon-neutral methanol. And, and maybe people haven't heard of methanol that much, but it is one of the big commodity chemicals. Hundreds of millions of tons are produced of it every year. So decarbonizing that will have a huge, huge benefit as well. Okay, so there's quite a wide range that this CO2 can and will be used in as soon as companies like yours can make it available by capturing it and at the same time working to mitigate climate change. Apart from the economic part, like using carbon dioxide as a feedstock for production, how big of a role do you see carbon capture having for climate change? Simply pulling carbon dioxide out of the air with the goal of mitigating climate change. How big of a piece of our climate action is that? It's a massive piece, you know, like if you just look at the numbers, you know, there's hundreds of billions of tons of CO2 that has to be removed by 2050. There's lots of routes to 
needing that beyond direct air capture, but it's going to have to play play a substantial part. And so if you kind of really add up what that number is in terms of a value, whether that's whether you're talking about hitting $50 per ton, 100, 200, it's going to be one of the world's biggest markets. And that's why I think I've seen maybe a few tweets from Climeworks or something saying, you know, the next big test there could be a direct air capture company because of the enormous scale. It's going to happen in a mixture of decentralized and centralized ways. It's going to happen in a, with a variety of different technologies. Because direct air capture can be placed anywhere in the world, anywhere where there's air, you can take advantage of the local conditions. So perhaps you're in a hot country and you can use solar thermal. Perhaps you're uh, in Iceland and you can use uh, geothermal energy. And so there's... There's going to be lots of different different implementations that are used to essentially get to the, the lowest price possible, and that will vary. Which is good. It means there's it means there's space for lots of different technologies to play a part in this. All right, that makes a lot of sense. So Climeworks has already come up a couple times, and when I think of direct air capture, they're kind of what I think of because they already have been up and running. They're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere right now. And they've gotten a lot of press for that. They've gotten the media attention and they're kind of pioneering the sector. You mentioned that your company emerged from this technological idea of how to do carbon capture. So what is that idea and how is it different than and better than some of the technologies used by Climeworks, who are years ahead in the development simply because they started sooner? Yeah, sure. Um, It's kind of corny in that I had I had a dream. I, I was I was trying to originally come up with like effectively a passive direct air capture system. You know, like how could you really get the cost down? I was like, let's think about passive processes. And I I had a dream where I saw CO2 dissolving in water, forming bicarbonate and carbonate ions, and then passing across an anion exchange membrane. So this is a membrane that can move things like bicarbonate and, and carbonate, and through a diffusion gradient, being able to separate the CO2 effectively from oxygen and nitrogen and the other things that are kind of in the mix. And that was just the, the seed of in, inspiration. You know, I thought about it more, and obviously you can't turn a, a passive system into something that has a lot of throughput and that, you know, is compact and delivers a lot of CO2. And so then we just explored well, how can you speed up that whole process? How can you speed up getting the CO2 into the water in the first place? And how can you drive the concentration gradient in your favor so you can pull lots of CO2 out? That was the starting point. And we looked at a lot of things. You know, we talk about the graveyard of ideas with our, you know, me and my co-founders. We have a, a Miro board of so many like iterations of how that that kind of idea can work. And eventually we've landed on utilizing off-the-shelf components, using water purification technologies and cooling tower infrastructure similar to carbon engineering. And we can do this entirely electrically with no heat, no use of pressure um, and things like that. We, We simply just drive concentration gradients using electrochemistry. That is much more efficient than using heat because you apply energy mostly just to the ions that you want to move Whereas with carbon engineering and Climeworks, as you know, as great as their technologies as they are, you end up having a lot of thermal loss. 
and heating a lot of material that isn't up to very much. And, and so that's really how it's done. But I think, I think that gives a good idea of, of our technology. Yeah, all right. So from what I vaguely remember, it's been quite a while since I looked at Climeworks technology. They're one of the first companies focused on direct air capture. They have a plant up and running and they're a pioneer in the field, but there's a pretty big cost to that. So how do you plan to move forward from where you are now to scaling up and building out your own plant? What's the next step for you guys? Yeah, it's all in motion right now. So, you know, we've done our proof of concept. We then got a British government grant for £250,000 to design what the plant could look like for a 120 tons per year system. We were pretty successful in that first phase, and now we've submitted an application. And within the next couple of weeks, we'll hear back whether we will have £3 million to actually go ahead and build the plant. Whether or not we have that grant, we also secured a nice chunky seed round which will allow us to build the plant anyway. So we're building the plant. We're going through detailed design over the next few months that will close by September. And then we will start actually procuring all the uh, key process units and, and commissioning the pilot plant sometime in 2023. To get there, we're actually um, scaling up in-house from our proof of concept work. and. Over the next few months, we're, we're working on a sort of a 10 kilo per day demonstrator, kind of similar size to maybe you've seen Climeworks's like single box that they have on wheels. You know, I think it's going to be of that kind of scale. And that's providing much better data to the, the detailed design. And so we can really hone, hone down on, on the specifics. So, yeah, it looks like... <laughs> Maybe in a year and a bit's time, you know, we should have a plant. And it's it's incredibly exciting time to be, to be working on this. That's awesome. I'll admit, you guys are farther along than I kind of expected you to be, which is fantastic. So when you're working on this proof of concept that's similar in scale to one of Climeworks' single boxes, do you have any measurements of output or efficiency? Like, how do your technologies compare to each other? Do you have any of that data? Yeah, so if, if you look at a, a, of a Climeworks or a carbon engineering kind of system, and um, what is publicly available is that a couple hundred kilowatt hours per tonne of CO2 captured just to move the air and, and run some like balancer plant kind of stuff, stuff. And then most of their energy, about 80%, is in the thermal release of the CO2. And so that, that's somewhere in the ballpark of 1,500 to 2,000 kilowatt hours per ton. So you've got roughly a 2,000 kilowatt hour per ton process, regardless of climates or carbon engineering. Short side note here, so just an idea for how much these systems cost. In Canada, the average kilowatt hour of energy costs about 20 cents. So a 2,000 kilowatt hour carbon capture system costs about $400 to keep running. Whereas if Guile and his company can reduce that energy use to something along the lines of even 500 kilowatt hours, it would be more like $100 to keep it up and running. And what we've shown is that we have an air contacting process as efficient as carbon engineering's, and that our, the way that we release the CO2 with, with electricity 
that's been shown in the lab to be 500 kilowatt hours a ton, so perhaps three times as less. And that's with a relatively unoptimized system. You know, uh, there's a whole bunch of um, of modifications we can make to the electrochemical cells. There's solution chemistry still to be fully optimized. And so we're pretty comfortable throwing around the 500 kilowatt hour per ton figure. And of course, there's going to be some other balance of plant stuff, like some pumps and stuff. But we think hitting a thousand and less will be is is quite a achievable target. Perhaps twice as efficient, maybe more. I'm going to not be too certain about it until we really have the pilot plant up and running. And it's only then can you really say what the entire process takes. But it's it's looking good so far. Yeah, definitely. It's looking very good so far. And nothing against Climeworks or carbon engineering, but it's good to see you guys bringing that next step of technology into the industry. And I would like to highlight something that I thought was really interesting that I learned at the Direct Air Capture conference that Climeworks organized back in September. And they very graciously brought all the new direct air capture companies together. And that was great. But I learned there that when they first started in 2009, eight or something, and they were trying to get some government funding or something like that, there, there was like a hit piece written about them from the academics of their local university saying that this company is breaking thermodynamics. They're trying to create a process that will never be possible or viable. So, you know, this is a waste of public funds. And I, and I thought, wow, like they really were pioneers and really had an uphill battle to, to, to push their technology forward. And we, we're swooping in the year 2020 with actually wind blowing in the right direction for us. And so we've, we've had it easy from a, from a credibility perspective. They laid the groundwork. So couldn't, couldn't have done it without them in a way. Right. Yeah, that is a good attribution to make that they've already broken the seal on that industry and they've given you that kind of head start. I'm not sure how Climeworks runs their business, but I'm fairly sure a lot of it comes from their interaction with carbon markets as offsets. It seems to me like Mission Zero might be taking a bit of a different approach, selling that captured carbon for use in the creation of products. Are you still interacting with those carbon offset markets? Yeah, the the carbon offset market, the, at least the voluntary carbon offset market, is a bit of a catalyst for us. You know, we we got funding from Stripe. We're approaching Shopify, but you know, uh, I think um, I, I I think we're a bit early for Shopify at this stage. And 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 there's other companies like Patch that that we're speaking to. So it it represents an early market pull. It certainly helps from a funding perspective and a financing perspective. And so we will take what we can get. If, if you are selling CO2 and you have a way of selling it and sequestering it within a material like a, a building aggregate, you actually have a dual revenue stream, which I think is a really interesting business model because you can perhaps split that carbon credit with your offtake, offtake and we're just a conduit. And so it's kind of a win-win. It helps us compete with market price CO2. Which, okay, used to be £100 per tonne, but in the UK, since the natural gas kind of crisis has been going on, uh, (laughs) our potential customers are now looking at kind of £1,000 per tonne. So at least 600 it's fluctuating a lot. So it's it's an interesting market at the moment. 
but we will we will continue to pursue utilization but if we can if we can bring it with a sequestration partner as well that's that's just the, the perfect match so i don't know how much you can say on this topic but it seems to me from what you're saying and how you're saying it that the carbon sequestration and the selling of carbon to companies is actually a bit more economic for you than utilizing those carbon offset markets as your source of revenue? It, no, it, it, it's a harder market to go after. You have to think of things beyond just the carbon price. And it depends on the scale, right? So if the carbon markets were back to normal and you're selling and, and companies like OCO that we're working with are buying CO2 for 100 pounds per tonne, that is a hard price to beat at the scale of which they want it, which is a unit that can deliver a couple thousand tons per year. You're more talking in the two to three hundred pounds per ton. But the value that we offer there is you have CO2 produced on demand, uninterruptible supply apart from maintenance and shielded from market forces. And so that offers a guaranteed long-term price and stability that current CO2 market cannot offer. So while maybe at the small use cases of you know thousands of tons per year, uh, we can't exactly compete on price at this stage, we can offer additional benefits. And I think that the recent fractures in the market have really highlighted that to our customers. But then if you go down a a few other scales, more down to 100 tons per year, users are much more likely to pay upwards of £1,000 per ton and above in normal market conditions. And so we're not necessarily targeting those small users at the moment. We don't want to get distracted. We want to build big plants that can deliver like big benefits. But you could foresee one day having soda stream DAC soda streams and and other you know small scale products for breweries and 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 other users that really only use tens to hundreds of kilos per month. So uh, there there could be a nice offering there, but that's not gonna that's not gonna help the climate crisis so much. It's not gonna change the world. That's a that's a future product game. Right, gotcha. So these carbon markets are incredibly complex, obviously, and subject to wild fluctuations a lot of the time, especially in the voluntary market, which I talked about on a previous episode with frost methane. They're in a similar situation to you. They're kind of trying to do the same thing, except they're focused on mitigating methane emissions instead of just carbon dioxide. So what would you say is the importance of transparency and honesty in this system as someone who is producing and selling these offsets and as someone who is buying carbon offsets? Oh, wow. I mean, you know, it's ultimately important. You know, reading around and articles come up regularly about carbon offsetting in popular newspapers like The Guardian, seeding doubt about the validity of carbon offsets because historically there have been a lot of schemes which um, haven't had the proper verification done and have been exposed, which then just shrinks the, the actual market because there's distrust in whether that someone's money will actually yield the kind of carbon reduction that they think they're paying. And, and that's, that's mainly been associated with biological routes because actually they're much harder to verify. So. I guess the kind of the strength that DAC has is that you can verify it using 
more robust chemical methods, which in theory can yield a higher degree of confidence in the offsets. But what's really important is that, you know, life cycle analyses are published and done thoroughly by independent companies. There's sort of standard practices, regulations on on the ways of doing this. I'm not an expert in this area, but if we don't get this right as soon as possible, and there's any kinds of corruption exposed, it does delay the growth of the market in some ways. So yeah, it's super important, and 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 so we're we're taking that very seriously as we as we start opening up more to pre-purchase agreements. And okay, so it might not be your field of expertise, but it's obviously something you're passionate about and you prioritize as you're building this company. So how does honesty and integrity relate to greenwashing in these systems? What is greenwashing, first of all? And how can we work to prevent greenwashing within these carbon markets and in just sustainability as a whole? Yeah, well, so yeah, greenwashing is the act of a company to to associate itself with some kind of thing that looks, you know, a process or technology or or even just branding that associates them with with some sort of sustainability image. And unfortunately, it's you know used a lot by oil and gas companies. They, they just invest a small amount into some you know green-ish projects, but then with their other hand, maybe investing lots into enhanced oil recovery or some other uh, practice that is just sort of delaying the transition rather than accelerating it. But I think even beyond just oil and gas companies, you do sometimes see companies promoting processes which. If, if you if you dig into the life cycle, may not really yield a green benefit. Perhaps they're consuming huge amounts of energy. Perhaps they're utilizing feedstocks which go against the actual uh, greenness of their process. And so, I, I guess just as people on the outside, it's important just to be aware of these things and and if so inclined to to write about them. I think there's a lot of interesting voices on climate community groups like air miners and my climate journey where where they're kind of talking about this particularly for companies not over promoting or overselling over promising the potentials of their technologies i think someone on on air miners wrote an interesting paper about this and so yeah it's we just have to not get a bit lost in in the green message i, I suppose otherwise we risk losing our own credibility yeah yeah that's right It seems to me in recent years that climate change has kind of become a global issue that companies are aware of, and they're also aware that this is something that consumers are worried about. So they want to make their position in climate change a selling point, and that makes it difficult to determine who you should buy from and who's making genuine climate pledges when just every single company is doing it to make you want to buy something. Yeah, exactly. So if you see on on some drinks bottle something that is like, "Hey, this is a green bottle," don't necessarily take that at its immediate value, and maybe you know do a bit of research about it, and don't necessarily assume when a company tells you that their product is better from a green perspective that it actually is. I guess I think that's a good point you raised. You know, as a consumer, <laughs> don't assume all green products are actually green. I, I, there's also the motivation of companies sometimes to just make any product out of carbon dioxide. You know, can we make rings out of carbon dioxide? Can we make yoga mats out of carbon dioxide? Can we make 
Can we do it in like toothpaste? And you just wonder if we're talking about resource allocation and and how we allocate the most resource, the most pressing challenges, it may not really be a good use of resources to sometimes make consumer products from CO2. Sometimes it actually makes the carbon intensity of the product worse by sometimes forcing CO2 into a, in a, into a particular supply chain. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So with that in mind, and I mean, not everyone can analyze the entire life cycle emissions of these products. Do you have any tips for how anyone can recognize when a product or company is genuinely trying to make a difference in their climate impact or when they're just trying to sell you something? Yeah, it's a tough question. You know, it's like, do your research. Is there some discussion about that company or that thing on the internet? There's nothing, you know, you can only work on information that is publicly available unless you're an expert and you can kind of speculate how that process potentially works. But if you are just someone who is thinking, should I make green consumption purchases or should I focus on carbon offset programs? I think it would be better to spend more time researching about where you can best put your money to avoid or, or remove carbon. Because there are plenty of good sources of information about the best reforestation programs, the best carbon removal programs. If, if you're going to put your money anywhere as a consumer, I'd put it directly into projects and then and not necessarily buying more expensive commercial consumer products. I think that would be better allocation resources. Right. Good point. And that reminds me of something I want to emphasize that I saw on Instagram a couple days ago. It was related to clothing, so it was like the most sustainable clothes that you can buy is the stuff you already have. And that applies to a bunch of other things too, and it just kind of means that it isn't necessarily the most sustainable action if you already own the products that you're going to buy to be more sustainable. Just as an example, I really like Tentry. I've worked with them a lot and I have a bunch of their products. But if I have a shirt and Tentry is selling a carbon neutral shirt or whatever, it's still better for me to just wear the shirt that I already have and spend my money on more meaningful projects. Totally. Or, you know, alternatively, it's, you know, secondhand products. Better to own, buy someone else's shirt that they don't want than to get a new shirt entirely. And same with electronics, you know, there's so much decent electronics on the refurb market, new phone, oh, secondhand phones, laptops. That is way better than, you know, like, if you're like, I, should I buy the new Fairphone or should I get a second-hand phone? You might actually be better off getting a second-hand phone. I don't know if you have Fairphone in, in the States, but... He meant to say Canada here. I don't know if they have it in the States either, to be honest, because I'm not from there. But I know we don't have it in Canada. I'm not sure if he knows I'm from Canada. Probably should have mentioned that at some point. It's like an ethical, fair trade phone that you can buy. I think it's made in like the Netherlands. Oh, it's really cool. Recommend checking it out. Not sure if they sell it in the States, but um, for European listeners that haven't heard of it, it's a super repairable long life phone uh, with like a four year warranty or something. 10 out of 10 on the iFixit score. I, I don't know why I'm um, wrapping Fairphone right now, but um, yeah, no, but I, I was thinking about that and I was like, actually, a secondhand phone is probably better. <laughs> Okay, well that was a nice little tangent into greenwashing and sustainable companies. I have one more question for you before we get into the quicker ones and wrapping up, 
And that question is, how do you envision our future of our energy systems? How will our energy use and carbon use change as we hopefully transition towards an energy system that is based on renewables and ideally mostly electric power? Yeah, I mean, you kind of had a little bit of that in your question. It's like we are going to move to an all-electric system eventually. And, you know, I, it's a difficult question because it's a bit of a crystal ball kind of thing. But, you know, the rollout of solar and wind is accelerating rapidly. You look at the curves on, on the amount of new solar and wind capacity installed each year, and it's like, it's crazy. It's, it's moving fast. Like you can look at the energy grid of the UK at any point in time. And sometimes you're looking at them like, holy shit, like 25% of our energy right now is just coming from the wind. It's amazing to see. So of course, these inter intermittent renewable supplies will have to be propped up a little bit by uh, better battery technologies, grid scale storage. That that will cover a lot of, a lot of it, but I see maybe a, a second coming of nuclear. Um, maybe in the form of these small modular reactors. I know nuclear's got a bad name, but I think in the kind of crisis that we're in, it's going to have to play a role. It plays a big role in countries like France. And, and actually, it means you have like a grid with a very low carbon intensity versus having gas to fill in the gaps. And then, you know, we have to we have to relinquish our dependence on fossil fuels, right? It's and, and what is the carbon source that you replace fossil fuels with? Well, it's the CO2, you know, it's, it's, it's the building block of life. You know, uh, plants have used CO2 as its building block for a billion years. It's about time we like figure out how to uh, do that at scale and do that efficiently. So if you're going to have CO2 as your building block, then you're going to need to have green hydrogen as your building block to make materials and fuels and chemicals. And so we'll use as much of the excess energy as we can muster on actually reproducing essentially synthetic oils, hydrocarbons and stuff like that. And that's, that's always been my kind of vision is, is just a world where we use CO2 as the foundation. But I'm sure, you know, biochemistry is going to have a, a, a lot to play here. And maybe scaling biology in ways that we hadn't we haven't yet realized. It's not all going to be just heavy industry in the ways that we normally think about it. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways to think about it. You could call it like a abiotic photosynthesis or something. It just makes sense. People complain that it's going against thermodynamics that you know it takes energy to do this, and it's like yes, yes, it does take energy to do this. We've been we've been living off 200 years of like burning you know dinosaur bones and and decayed plant matter at some point we're going to have to like relinquish the freebies <laughs> and and recognize that you have to just transform energy from one thing into another uphill sometimes yeah that's 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 uh, yeah maybe and, and unless there's any particular prompts on that i think that's that's where i kind of see things going no yeah that's a great answer you've covered a bunch of fields with that explanation and just a quick shout out to the phrase abiotic photosynthesis, because that is just fantastic. Using that process to build the future of our consumer products and the rest of our systems is a really good way to put that. Abiotic photosynthesis. Wow. Well, last thing, shout out to Primo Levi, who wrote the, the book, The Periodic Table of Elements, who finishes on the chapter of, of a story of a carbon dioxide molecule 
flying through the air and entering the, the ecosystem. It's, it's a fantastic description of his vision of how CO2 will one day be, be the foundational building block of everything. And reading that chapter that was written 60 years ago was a ins- very inspiring chapter to read before I started my PhD in, in CO2 electrolysis. All right, that sounds awesome. I'll have to grab a link for that for the show notes for when this episode goes up. Well, that's kind of all I've got for longer questions today. I've just got some short ones for you to answer if you got the time to stick around a bit more. Boom, boom. So my first question is, what has had the biggest impact on your company, whether it be positive or negative? Policy, technology, or economics? Yeah, what's had the biggest impact... It's hard to pick one, but I think partly the policy of the British government coming up with a hundred million pounds direct air capture competition, you know, like that came out at the perfect time for us. Yes, we felt a bit early at the time, but it's been pivotal in our story selling what we're going to be doing in the next few years. So that I think that helped our investment round a lot. But also big shout out to Stripe because that also has, has been pretty transformative in, in, in our company too. Okay, next question. So you work in carbon capture. You are one of the founders of a carbon capture company. So maybe a small grain of bias salt here. But what works better, carbon capture or simply focusing on emitting less greenhouse gases? Well, <laughs> I'm going to say it all comes down to the life cycle. I think, you know, electric vehicles are very efficient. I'm not sure, but, I, but unless you have a green grid, you don't have a green electric vehicle. So that's the initial problem. And then it still takes a lot of energy to make them. At least I think the net negativity of a carbon removal process like direct air capture, if done well, will be, you know, say kilowatt per kilowatt equivalents, you better put your kilowatt hours into carbon removal rather than driving an electric vehicle in a way, you know. Okay. Yeah, that's a good answer. It's a very calculated answer. I like that. Yeah, ride a bike and and invest in carbon removal. (laughs) There you go, and you save a whole bunch of money while you do it. My next question is, will carbon capture continue to be used even if we get to the point overall where we've minimized emissions and where our society is getting closer and closer to a point of carbon neutrality and independence from fossil fuels? Will carbon capture still be needed? It's either going to be, like, there's only two, two options. Yes, we need carbon capture to uh, capture CO2 and transform it as our foundational building block. Or we um, have scaled biological processes to be the carbon foundation. So we, so we let plants be the carbon capture machines and we found some ways to make that a lot faster, a lot cheaper, a lot more scaled. It might be one or the other. It might be a mix of the two. You know, we need to get carbon from somewhere. And so I think that's really the only two ways to do it. Okay, great answer. That's kind of become apparent that this is obviously something that we will still need simply because we won't have the foundation of not only using things like gas and diesel, but we also won't have what you might call byproducts of fossil fuels. The polymers, the plastics, the amount of plastics that we use that are based on fossil fuels is something that we will still need in the future, and we will need a new source for that. And it sounds like you think it will be carbon capture, which is, I think, a very plausible option. 
Yeah, I mean, there's almost interesting examples of, of when what happens when you are really constrained by the fossil fuels that you have. And that happened in Nazi Germany and South Africa when they had embargoes placed on them. And their lack of access to oil meant that they had to find ways of making hydrocarbons by reacting um, CO2 or carbon monoxide with hydrogen. And so they were the first examples of actually making fuels and petrochemicals without oil, essentially. They used coal to get there, but they laid the foundation to being able to doing it with CO2. So my next question is a bit more broad and open. If you could change one thing in the world, whether it's within sustainability or not, what would it be? Uh, Unpriced externalities. So, you know, the fact that Director Capture is a waste collection company, essentially, to, to price in emissions based on the environmental impacts that they have. I think that would solve the problem so quickly, so quickly, but it would add costs to the whole supply chain. Yeah, it would definitely provide an incentive to work towards it, which sometimes feels like it's missing. And without any incentive to change, some companies seem like they just are fine with not caring and not making any change. So it definitely would help in that way. Yeah, it make everyone pay for carbon removal. In, in, in the fairest way possible. Yeah, okay. That's a fantastic answer. It's very simple, but it's very effective at the same time. My last question today is, again, a little more broad. Do you believe that based on the world around you and everything that you're seeing in your industry, do you think that we can mitigate emissions enough to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement and avoid the worst of climate change? Is that still possible? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, sorry for the unsure answer on here. It's I, I, I don't think we're probably going to hit the goals that we want to hit. And so there's going to be some amount of climate change, a lot, flooding and, and, and all the terrible fallout. What I'm more, well, what I'm more optimistic about, let's say, is I think we consistently underestimate human adaptability. The, the fallout to humanity may not be as, as bad as we fear in, in, in some ways anyway. Because, you know, for example, there's an interesting book, uh, Skeptical Environmentalist. Uh, Bjorn Lomborg points out that even though natural disasters have been increasing year on year over the last century, the number of deaths and, uh, and issues related to them have, are at an all-time low because we're very good at early warning systems. We're very good at bringing water to people that need it, bringing food to people that need it and such things. And so we're very adaptable. And we might also, but, you know, maybe we can meet these targets and we're, we're underappreciating how rapid the, the move towards sustainable technologies is. Wind and solar energy is starting to be cheap, the cheapest form of energy around. You know where the money's going to move. <laughs> so so that's, that's kind of the things that make me feel a bit more optimistic. Perfect. So a cautious optimism. That's great. That's a great way to finish off our conversation today. So where can listeners find you and Mission Zero to learn more about this? On, on, on our website, missionzero.tech, uh, it's a pretty basic website at the moment. You know, me and my co-founder Nick have barely got a, got a profile description on there. I think Nick says he's mysterious on there. But there's some news. <laughs> there's some news about, you know, our, our latest announcements and stuff. And we'll be revamping it in the next few weeks. We're on Twitter. Mission Zero Technologies, I think is the handle, and uh, LinkedIn. So that's going on. And yeah, we'll have some very exciting announcements over the next couple of months, I'm sure. 
I love to hear it. Okay, thank you so much for coming on today, Guile. It's been a great conversation, and I really appreciate you making the time to cover the multitude of topics that we've managed to touch on in the last hour. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. It's been, it's been a blast chatting to you. All right, that was a really interesting episode. I have to give a big thanks to Guile for coming on. He was a great guest, and he's working on some truly fascinating things over at Mission Zero. I highly recommend you check them out if you're at all interested. I'm sorry, Guile. I'm really trying to get your name right. I'm just struggling a bit here. But thank you for sticking around throughout the whole episode. I appreciate you being here. That's pretty much all I've got for today. Check out the show notes for links to all of our social media and ways that you can keep up and support the show. Stay innovative. I'll see you next week.